Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center, connecting people to God and each other. In our current series, The Five Solas, we are exploring the central truths that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and that we stand on the scriptures alone as our final authority. For more information, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Well, we are starting a new sermon series this morning. We just finished up uh, several months going through the book of James. Uh, we normally will just preach through books of the Bible. Uh, if, if you haven't been around this church for very long, that's what we do. Just verse by verse, book by, by book. We're actually going to take, though, a couple months and, and do something a little different, uh, something of a topical sermon series. And so our new series is called The Five Solas. And so, as you see there, kind of the list of these five solas, you might be wondering, why is it that a church in Honeyville, Indiana, has chosen to do a sermon series with all Latin titles? Uh, it seems like an odd choice, at least go with Amish and be culturally relevant. Uh, so we will explain here, hopefully briefly, uh, as we start this sermon this morning, uh, why we're doing that. But before we do that, let's stand up together. I want to read to you from Romans 1. Verses 16 and 17, well-known passages, and, and we're, we're actually not going to go back through and dig through these, these verses. I just want to sort of set the tone for this morning uh, with these verses. So Romans 1, starting in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this precious gospel through which you have brought us into your kingdom, through which you have brought us into your family and you have saved us. And we pray, God, that, that as we meet together this morning, that that gospel glory would be put on display, that, that you would birth in us a hunger for you, Lord, that cannot be satisfied with any earthly thing, that cannot be satisfied so long as we live, that we would, we would seek you, we would search for you, we would hunger for you, and I, and I pray, God, that you would do that work. That's only something you can do by your Spirit. Lord, I pray for myself as I, as I preach this morning. Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. And I pray, God, that, that you would be glorified and everything that's said, that, that you would bring joy to your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. October 31st, 1517 was a landmark day. It, it was not the first Halloween. That's not what made it important. But this was a colossal, a monumental day as long as church history is studied, this day will be remembered. As long as the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached on the earth, this is a day people will look to. It was on this day that a monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the, the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, protesting the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. So we have a Roman Catholic monk 
nailing these 95 statements of here are the abuses going on in our church. And before Luther knew it, these 95 theses he had posted were copied down by students of his, and they were used on a printing press, which had just been invented, and they, they got distributed all throughout Germany and ultimately all of Europe. So there, there were sort of these things coming together, this newly invented printing press, this, this monk taking a stand against some of the abuses going on in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and all of a sudden, these statements spread like wildfire across Europe. The result is what is called today the Protestant Reformation, of which we, we come down the line of the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation, it really is protestant. There was a protest against the theological abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. Abuses that actually distorted the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this, this Reformation was really a, a revolution that happened in the world. Everything in the world changed. The world we live in today is a result of this Reformation that happened back in the 16th century. The gospel, after, after a thousand years of darkness, was recovered. There, there was really a thousand year time where, where Christians did not even know the basic content of the gospel. They had been fed a false gospel, and, and after a thousand years, that's called the dark ages, by the way, for those of you that, that are familiar with history. In the midst of this dark ages, the gospel was recovered, and the dark ages soon gave way to the penetrating light of the word of God. As God's word began to spread and was put in the hands of, of common people, Martin Luther even translated the Bible into German so that common people could read the Bible, and it, trans, uh, it, it transformed the world. And so the central issues then of this reformation, this, this world revolution that were going on, were called the five solas the core commitments of this revolution. Sola is a Latin word that just means alone. It means only. And so these five solas brought the church back to a, a true understanding of what the gospel was. And, and as long as God continues to build this church, Eden Worship Center, it's my prayer that these five solas will be the foundation of everything that this church is built on. That's why they hang in the back of the room on banners. We want to remind ourselves of our theological heritage and of who we are and of the gospel. And so each of the five solas, I'm just going to touch on them real quickly because we're going to be talking about them for a couple months, but they were in, in response to specific abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. So, so the first thing we see is sola scriptura. It means scripture alone. The Roman Catholic Church taught that the foundation for faith and practice came from a combination of things. It was the scripture. It was the Pope, or what they, what they call the magisterium. It's sort of like when the, when the official teaching comes from the Catholic Church, that, that's authoritative on par with the Bible. Uh, it came from tradition. And so there was these three things kind of of equal weight. Scripture, the teaching of the church, and our tradition. And they said, this is where all of our foundational authority comes from. And the Reformers said, the Pope, the church councils, our traditions, they are not authoritative. They are not divine in their teaching. Scripture alone is the authoritative, inspired word of God. Secondly, sola gratia, grace alone. The Roman Catholic Church said we're saved again by a combination of things. 
We've got God's grace, obviously, is necessary in salvation. We also have our merit. It's the things that we do. It's our penance. It's our good works. And we combine with those things the merits of the saints that have lived and gone before us. And we combine all of these things together and and a person is saved. And the reformers said, no, salvation is a work of God's grace alone. We contribute nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. Salvation is a work of God's grace. It's not by works. It's not by good deeds. It's nothing that we do and nothing anyone's done before us except for Christ. Next, sola fide means faith alone. Again, the Roman Catholic Church said we are justified. We're made right by God by faith and the works we produce by our effort. So it's, it's God's work and our effort combined to make us in right standing with God. And, and the reformers said, no, we're justified by faith alone, and even this faith that justifies us is a gift that God gives us. Next, solus Christus, that's Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church said we are saved by the merits of Christ, which we would agree with, but then they say we're also saved by the merits of, of, of the saints that live. So, so Mary, for instance, the mother of Jesus, is, is known as a co-redemptrix. Uh, redemptrix with Christ. She, she was a co-participant in our redemption with, with Christ. Not only that, but we approach God not just through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, but through the saints and through Mary. In fact, I was recently in a Roman Catholic church on Mother's Day because uh, it was the only way we were going to get to hang out with Andrea's family. So we said, we'll go to church with you. Uh, and so we went and this, the entire sermon was basically about since Mary's Jesus' best friend, you should talk to her instead of Jesus. Sort of like when you're in junior high and you like a girl, so you talk to her best friend instead of her. The reformer said, no, we need no mediator between us and Christ. Christ is the mediator between us and God the Father. We don't need a go-between, and we should not be looking to a go-between. More than that, it is not the merits, it's not the works of, of other people that contribute to our salvation. It is the merit of Christ Alone, And the reformers would even say, it's not even on the merits of Christ's work in us, it is the merits of Christ's work for us. It's not that Jesus transforms our life and because of that we do good works by the Holy Spirit and that earns us something. The Bible just says that's a result of God saving you. These are very different, very different versions of the gospel. Finally, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. Because of this theology that we're kind of laying out of how the gospel works for the Roman Catholic Church with with things coming together and working together, the natural conclusion is the glory in the salvation of a sinner goes to a few people, goes to a few places. It certainly goes to God first and foremost. It also kind of goes to me because I played a part in this. And, And so the reformers said, Mary and the saints get none of the glory from salvation. I get none of the glory for salvation. The gospel is this. The true gospel is that which gives glory to God and God alone. And so these are the five solas. These are keys to understanding the true gospel over and against a false gospel, a different gospel. We're going to spend the next couple months talking about various aspects that that fall in line with, with these truths. And so you may be sitting here this morning thinking, that sounds terrible. That sounds really horrible and a little bit like school, and that's how it's felt so far in this sermon, and I hate this, and I think I'll take a couple months off. And that's why we're preaching what we're preaching this morning. Before we dig into that is this. 
The topic today is why theology matters. Why does this matter? We live in a, in a world and in a culture where, where we are constantly spoon-fed motivational speeches on a Sunday morning, and, and we get ourselves in a mindset that if I don't leave pumped and with goosebumps, then the right things did not happen in church this morning, and that has never been the historic Christian understanding of the faith. So we're going to talk this morning, why does theology matter? Theology, doctrine, these are words we'll use kind of back and forth this morning. And to, in order to understand this, why does theology matter? The big idea, the big framework I want to work from this morning is this. We need to know the difference between religion and theology. They're not the same thing. We need to know the difference between religion and theology. So, so in 2013, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom heard a case involving religion. One of the, the Supreme Court justices there in, in uh, the United Kingdom Lord Tulson wrote in their ruling these words, religion should not be confined to religions which recognize a supreme deity. So the official ruling was on, on what religion is. We can't confine religion to that which recognizes some kind of God figure. Religion doesn't need a God figure to, to exist. Ronald Dworkin wrote a book, Religion Without God, and in it he says religion is deeper than God. A belief in a God is only one possible manifestation or consequence of that worldview. So religion then is a human activity. If you go to a university and, and you look for their religion department, it's actually going to be paired up with, with other studies like anthropology, sociology, psychology. Those are going to be together. Uh, departments that have to do with human behavior. Religion is a human behavior. It's a human behavior that can be studied and it can be researched, it can be observed. And when we study religion, the subject matter is man. So that, that's, that's what I mean by, by it's a human endeavor. When we study religion, we're actually studying the practices of people. We're not necessarily studying a God. We don't need a God for that. So you don't need a Bible to study religion. You can have religion without God. So for instance, secular humanism fits the category of religion, and they don't believe in God at all. They believe in, in humans. So religion, though, is not evil in and of itself. It's neither good nor bad. It just is. It's just a thing. It's just a thing that people do. Religion's neither good or bad. It can be good. It can honor God. James 1, we just finished the book of James, James 1 Verse 27 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So these human endeavors, these things that we do as, a, as an outworking of our faith, James says there, there's things we can do that honor God. So not all religion is bad. And sometimes we kind of hear that thrown around a lot. God hates religion. Well, not all of them. Not all of them. There, 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 is, there, there is a religion who claims to worship and serve and know and proclaim, believe and obey Jesus. And so if we take all of those religious activities away, we don't have much left of the Christian faith. God does not hate that. God hates man-made religion. Man-made religion is always bad. It is, in fact, called idolatry in the Bible. That's a very different thing from theology. All right, I know we're kind of 
heavy trying to get into this sermon, but it will help us as we go. I promise if you'll hang with me. Theology is a different thing. Theology is not the study of man. Theology is the study of God. Theology is a God-centered thing, the study of God and what God says. So, So we could define theology like this. Theology is divine written truth taught by human teachers and loved, lived, prayed, and sung by every true believer. So now as we look at this definition of theology, it doesn't make a lot of sense for a Christian to say, I hate theology. It becomes a very confusing statement for a Christian to make because there's three components then to to real true theology. Number one, theology has a source. Theology has a source. It is divine written truth. So theology is not philosophy. It is divine, not human. Philosophy is a human endeavor. Theology is a divine endeavor. I just talked to a, to a coach yesterday from Cedarville University who was talking to me about their school was kind of heading in a direction that was a little sketchy, and they completely turned things around, and he said, we even got rid of our philosophy department because a lot of our problems were coming from there. And I said, I'm coming to Cedarville. <laughs> I'm just going to come. I like it. Right? It is, it is not a human endeavor. It is a divine endeavor. So the Bible is essential to proper theology. Christianity is a revelation. It is God revealing himself. We don't measure God on instruments. We don't look through the right telescope and see him. We only know because God has revealed himself. So what we know about God does not come from us. It doesn't come from our experiences and our observations. It comes to us from the mind of God himself. And so the Bible is foundational to everything that we believe as Christians because the Bible is from God and the Bible is about God. This is not a book that God gave us about us. It's a book that God gave us about him. That's why we love God's word, because in it we get God. And so that's the source of theology. Number two, theology has a method. That is, it is taught by human teachers. It is not just the Holy Spirit downloading it to you when you become a Christian. God did not design things to work that way. We have scripture. We have the authors of the Bible. We have got our parents. We have got our grandparents. We have got our pastors. We have got people that we've entered into relationships with, that we're accountable to, that have discipled us. Theology is taught to us by human teachers. And so if we are one of those that says, I don't care what any man says, I don't need to be taught by a person, then then we are operating in a way that's outside of how God has always designed the faith to work. Theology comes to us through human teachers, and and if we reject that, we're misguided at best, but we're probably dangerous. We're probably dangerous people. Number three, theology has a purpose, to be loved, prayed, lived, sung by believers. So unfortunately, there's two very common responses, and you may be fitting into one of these camps. As we said, we're going to do a series on the five solas, and today's sermon's called Theology Matters. You may have had one of these two responses. One is this response that gets sort of a a wicked Grinch-like grin on your face. It says, I can't wait to beat somebody up with the stuff we're going to be talking about the next couple months. I cannot wait to batter them over the head with the club that is theology. The second is this, you get a shudder up your spine, you get an oh no, that points to 
a rejection of theology as something that is wholly unspiritual and divisive. So we hear this all the time. Theology is cold. Theology is boring. Theology is unspiritual. Theology, doctrine, it just divides Christians. It's enough just to believe in Jesus. We don't need to think about all the details. I saw this on, on Facebook this week from a person who claims to be a Christian. You know what? You, all you need to know about God, you can get just by kind of reading the stuff Jesus says in the New Testament. Just read the red letters in the New Testament. That's all you need. As if God didn't write the entire Bible. It's, it's, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And both of those things miss the point entirely of what theology is. Of what the Christian faith, the faith once delivered for all time to the saints, what that, what that really is. So why is it then? Why do we need to talk about theology? Why are we talking about it right now? Why are we doing a series that's very theological in nature? Two big points. One I'm going to talk about for just a couple seconds. The other we'll spend the rest of our time on. Number one, because everyone is a theologian. Theology matters because you are a theologian. Now you might be in the room and say, I'm not even a Christian. You're still a theologian. Theology is what we believe about God and we all believe something about God. Everybody is a theologian. So the question is, am I a good one or a bad one? Is what I believe about God true or is what I believe about God false? And so theology matters because what we believe about God matters. It matters what you believe about God. Think of it this way. Has anyone ever said anything about you that wasn't true? Did that bother you? If it bothers you and you're sinful and kind of a bummer most of the time and you know it, Imagine how the holy, sinless, spotless, righteous judge of the universe feels when people say things about him that are not true. Theology matters because it matters what we believe about God. But number two, and this is where we're going to spend our time today. This is, this is the big idea. Number two, theology matters because right theology keeps our faith from becoming just another man-made religion. I said religion's neither good nor bad, but, but man-made religion, it's bad. God hates it. Theology can save us. Let me illustrate this to you from the book of Exodus, a well-known well story probably to many of us. But Moses has led the people of God, the children of Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, and they've arrived at Mount Sinai where God meets with them. And so God calls Moses to himself, Exodus 24. God calls Moses to himself up the mountain. So Exodus 24, starting in verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and he went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So God calls, uh, by, by the way, this description of how they saw God's presence is a lot closer than the blasphemous images we have of the old man with the long white beard, uh, which we're actually forbidden from doing, uh, that, that, that they see this glorious fire and smoke glory and splendor of God that Moses is then called into. And Moses then spends 40 days in the presence of God on the mountain. Well, what's going on in those 40 days, if we were to read? 
The next several chapters are just pure, it is pure God speaking to Moses. It's pure theology. It is hearing from God what God wants. Who God is, what he's like, what he wants. It is utterly God-centered. God is revealing himself to Moses. God is revealing his will. God is revealing his ways. Uh, Ultimately, God with his own finger writes on the tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. Well, what's going on, meanwhile, down in the valley? You're surrounded. You can, you can physically see the glory of God. Fire, smoke, thunder, splendor at the top of the mountain. Your leader is up there meeting with God. You're at the foot of this mountain where you can see it. It's going on. You're right at the foot of the mountain. What's going on? Exodus 32. Verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings and the gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. So Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Moses is on the mountain, the people can see God's glory at the top of the mountain. God has gone nowhere, we know what's happening right there, and they became impatient. They had some ideas of what felt right to them, what needed to happen. This is the way things should be going, and and we gotta move. We can't just sit here and wait. So they say to Aaron, make us gods. Make us gods that we can worship and bow down to. Now, that was a very interesting (laughs) and funny scenario when God points out what's going on to Moses. Moses comes down, kind of loses his mind a little bit, and Aaron's explanation was, we just threw the gold in the fire, and this is what came out. (laughs) Kind of funny. On the mountaintop, we've got pure theology. God showing Moses, this is who I am. This is what I want. This is my will. These are my desires. This is my command. And at the foot of the mountain, because people were following their hearts, we have pure man-made religion going on. The people have made a God in the image that they wanted. In this case, it was a bull, which happened to be the sacred image of religion in Egypt. See, the people became impatient. They followed their hearts. Meanwhile, God is revealing his will. The people are following their hearts, and it just so turns out that their hearts were leading them in the exact direction that their culture was. They were Egyptian folks. Their God looked an awful lot like Egypt's God, and I would argue that in our man-made Christian religions, we've done exactly the same thing. We've rejected God, we've rejected his clear word, we've rejected doctrine, we've rejected theology because it just doesn't pump us up and feel spiritual, and we've made a God that looks exactly like the God that our culture worships. So Moses is on the mountain. 40 days being instructed by God. This is theology. Theology is God on God's terms. God on God's terms. And the people make a religion of their own, a God on their terms. One they can control, they can do as they pleased. A God that required no specific obedience. The problem with this God is that he doesn't exist. 
This God was deaf, dumb, blind, impotent. Their rituals, their spiritual practices were still going on, but there was no substance or reality in anything that they were doing. In other words, there was no true theology driving their religious practice, even though religious practice was still going on. They just got God as they wanted him, and they could keep their pleasures too. And the crazy thing, when you look at this, is the very real presence of, of the God that they knew was God on this scene, the Lord. If, if you look at verses five and six, Aaron says, tomorrow will be a feast day to the Lord. In your Bible, that word is in all capital letters. That, that means Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God who shares that name with no one. We know exactly who this is. We're gonna have a feast day to the Lord while we make this idol that we worship. And then it says, they rose up early the next day. They made their offerings to Yahweh, the God of now, so see here, they made the bulls that looked just like Egypt, but they were worshiping. Who did they think they were worshiping? Yahweh. They weren't trying to replace him. They were trying to pull in something from somewhere else because it felt very spiritual and very right. And so they're going to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, the God whose glory and splendor can be seen in smoke and fire on top of the mountain. And then what happens when we follow our heart in that way? And instead of taking God's, uh, God's revealed truth, we kind of come up with our own way of worshiping him that, that we are, uh, convinced in our heart is right. What happens? They made their offerings. They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That is talking about sex. Rose up to play is talking about like there was some stuff going on in the congregation. Now, it sounds crazy to us. We wouldn't do that on a Sunday morning. Offering's over, guys. You got 15 minutes, whatever. That's insane. That's what they did. They chose to worship a God whose scary presence they could see on top of the mountain in ways that he had strictly forbidden. And it looked just like the culture they had left. How do they not see that conflict? Well, well, I think it's this. It's the result of what happens when we shift from theology to man-made religion. When we turn from theology, we turn from doctrine, and we turn to how we think things should be. And really, we don't have to look any further than our own culture right now, do we? The more we abandon God's truth, the further into immorality and moral insanity and apostasy we fall. This is all over in the American church. The further we get from the biblical center, worship becomes more self-oriented, more psychological, more feel-good, like a pep rally, more pragmatic, how-to oriented. These are the things we do. These are the steps we follow. In other words, it becomes very man-centered. Every step we take away from true theology and doctrine is a step towards man-centeredness. Much of American Christianity has lost its theological center. The house is still standing, but the foundation has rotted away. One of the large denominations in our country, the Presbyterian Church USA, just met together to announce that, that we are in full acceptance of homosexual behavior even for our leaders, even for our pastors. A complete rejection of the clear teaching of God, and it happens because we keep taking steps to stay up with culture. 
We keep trying to keep a little bit of Egypt because there were some things that went on in Egypt that were good. So we kind of try to incorporate those things into our lives. Many of our best sellers on the bookshelves, popular preachers, even our biggest churches, preach a powerless, man-centered gospel that's really just another man-made religion. It has no power to save or even to change people's lives. Meanwhile, they would accuse those who would call us back to some sort of theological foundation and doctoral centeredness of being the ones who are actually promoting man-made religion. And people actually buy it. That's the thing that boggles my mind. You've got people who have wholesale abandoned it, and then they say things like, you know, it's super unspiritual, people who just care about doctrine. Jesus didn't care about doctrine. And people buy it. And they make millions off the books they're selling. And it's insanity. And we must return to the solid foundation of the Word of God. Reflection on truth, meditation, makes theology come alive. And then theology becomes very practical in our lives. Part of the reason that, that maybe some of you in this room have a very negative reaction to the word theology or the word doctrine is because you've been fed a lie over and over and over that says it's possible to have right theology and have that be dead. That's not true. You can believe the right things like Satan does and shudder. Right theology involves worship of God. It, it, it demands expression. And we've been told over and over and over again that these are dead, cold, meaningless things and they just don't pump us up the way motivational speeches do. I remember preaching, <laughs> preaching one Sunday, and we preached through books of the Bible, so it's not like we just pick our topic, and I got done, and there had been a visitor here. The visitor told the person, uh, I, I like a motivational speech for a sermon, so I didn't like this. <laughs> That's the world we live. That's not a weird thing for somebody to say. We live there. It's the world we, we live in. But when we meditate on the truth of who God is, remember what theology is. It is God on his terms. God as he is, when we meditate on that, there's something in us that comes alive. Theology becomes, I, I can't think of a thing in the universe more practical in my life than theology has been. There's nothing, I coach a college tennis team. We got slaughtered yesterday in a tennis match. Theology is incredibly practical to me in a moment like that. I had to announce to that team that I was quitting after this season which was horrible for me, theology is really important to me in moments like that. There's nothing more practical in my life than theology when I'm going through trials and trouble, when, when something good happens and I'm tempted to exalt myself to a place I don't belong. There's nothing more practical in my life than theology. That comes when we meditate on who God is. Troubles come our way and we go, but this is who God is. It gives us peace. Well, what makes it practical? Number one, it marks a true disciple. Now, you don't have to be a scholar to be a Christian. You don't have to have a degree to, to go to heaven. You don't have to have a degree to have a ministry. You don't have to be classically trained. But someone who has false theology is probably a false disciple. John 14, verse 23 says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. See, true true doctrine conforms to the words of Jesus and to the image of Jesus. It marks a true disciple. And so so when I say you don't need to be some, some trained theologian, Again, you are a theologian, you believe something about God, but you don't have to have gone to school and know all kinds of theological terms. You might not even be able to to express the gospel in really clear terms that make sense to anybody but you. But a true disciple will not reject the teaching of Jesus. A false disciple will. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. That was not him talking about a mystical experience that happened somewhere outside of Scripture. That was him talking about the fact that his people will receive his word. We will not reject it. And so when the gospel is rejected, when the clear teaching of God is rejected, we have the marks of a false disciple. And it's a person who we ought to call to repentance and faith. So theology matters because it marks us as disciples. Number two, it develops maturity in true disciples. Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14. For though by this time, this is a scathing word, and it couldn't apply any more perfectly to today's church. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. The solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is one of the lies we've been fed in the church today. That spirituality and maturity are the same thing. They're not the same thing. Maturity is a different thing from spirituality. A six-month-old baby Christian can be spiritual. That doesn't make them mature. You You don't become a Christian and the Holy Spirit just downloads all this stuff into you and now I'm a mature Christian. Maturity comes the same way in the spiritual world that it does in the physical world. And that is maturity involves the development of spiritual muscles. Through constant use, is what the author of Hebrews says. It involves training. It involves practice. Ephesians 4, verses, 1 through, or verses 11 through 14. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful uh, deceitful schemes. And so the Bible has a lot of wonderful things to say about children. It has nothing wonderful to say about people who should be adults and are still children. We're called to have a childlike faith. Yes, we're not called to have a childish, uninformed faith. 
And so God's word would call Christians everywhere mature, grow. We need some spiritual muscles so that we won't be blown about by every new wind of doctrine. And we see this over and over. The newest book comes out. The newest preacher becomes popular. And he says something that even the, the youngest Christian should be, be able, able to identify as opposing the word of God, as not in keeping with the clear teaching of Scripture, and the church makes him a millionaire. Multiple times over. We need some spiritual muscle. So, so theology and doctrine, the pursuit of them, the meditation on, on the attributes of God, these are things that cause maturity in a Christian. And we just don't get it any other way. We just don't get it any other way. God does not download maturity into you because you're a Christian. That's why we see people who have been a Christian for 15 years and they're still kind of bonkers. They still act like giant babies. And you say, how can you be like that? We don't get it any other way. Number three, it produces spiritual health in the Christian. Wrong doctrine eats away at your spiritual health. To put it another way, if you feel that you are lacking spiritual vitality, if you're not bearing fruit, if you're not courageous enough, if you're not joyful enough, if you're not filled with love and hope, it may be that it's because your grasp of biblical doctrine, of theology, is shallow and weak or even distorted and incorrect. It corrodes you. It eats away at you to have false teaching. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So what's Paul saying here? Paul's calling us to think. Think. Think about who God is. Think about what God has done. Uh, now, I, I just pair this up with Jesus' words in the gospel where someone approaches him and says, good teacher, and Jesus says, hold on, who are you calling good? Only God's good. By which Jesus doesn't mean he's not good, he means I'm God. So, so the Bible kind of has this constant thing of like, we're bad, God is good. So when we hear things like, whatever's true, though every man be found a liar, still you'd be found true. Whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Who are we describing here? This is God. We think on who God is. We think on the things that God has done. God, as he has revealed himself, and then Paul says, the things you've seen, what you've learned from me, what you've seen in me, theology comes to us from people, what you've seen and learned from me, you put these things into practice, and then this promise he makes is, is incredible. Put that verse back up, if you would, guys. What does he say? Practice these things in what? And the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. He doesn't say practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. He says practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God himself. See, people often attempt to pursue God. That's what we want, isn't it? We want God with us. 
God created us like that. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. We have a longing in our hearts for God with us. Augustine said it like this, you've made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts will not rest until they rest in you. We are made longing for God himself. And many people attempt to get that by rejecting theology. I don't want theology, I just want Jesus. I don't need doctrine, I just want Jesus. And instead of God, they get a religion of their own making that has no power, no stability, no faithfulness. These are people, we all know them, they're on a roller coaster all the time. Highs and lows, highs and lows, beyond that of the normal Christian. Sometimes they're in, other times they're declaring themselves not even a Christian anymore. It's a religion of our own making that has rejected theology where God has promised to give us himself and and embrace some sort of spirituality that gives us goosebumps every now and then. And then what do we do when the goosebumps aren't working? We say, well, God doesn't love me. God might not be real. God doesn't accept me. It's actually a false religion. Paul says, if you want God, study God. If you want God, study him. That doesn't mean go to college. That doesn't mean buy all kinds of theological books or start trying to raid my library. Don't raid. Don't steal. I'll loan you books, though, if you want. No, it means this. What does it mean to study true theology? We study God as he is, as he's revealed himself. You can study theology with no book but this one. Now listen, God has blessed his church with a wealth of books. And they're good, and they're glorious, and they're a gift from him. But not everybody is going to be that person. Honey, for Christmas this year, get me the collected works of Jonathan Edwards. If you're dating someone and she says that to you, you marry her. (laughs) You marry her. So no, I'm not calling us to something where I'm saying the only people who are in are the people who pursued this track. It's easy for us to hear that way because we're super self-conscious. All of us in some form have little man syndrome, don't we? Where we hear everything everybody says as a personal attack on us. I'm not doing that this morning at all. I'm calling us Christians, let's pursue the knowledge of our God Let's let him mature us in the way he's chosen to mature us. Let's let him give himself to us in the way he's chosen to give himself to us instead of the way we've created for ourselves. So theology matters because what we believe about God, what he's like, what he wants from us, whether or not we will have to answer to him, those things affect every part of our lives. My life has been marked by the knowledge that I will answer to God one day. That's why I, my heart bursts in me sometimes when we sing songs declaring the work of Christ on my behalf. My, my ministry has been shaped by the fact that, that God says, you will answer to me for that ministry. It affects every part of our lives, what we believe about God. Theology matters because if we get it wrong, everything else will be wrong too. It affects every aspect of our lives. There's nothing that's untouched in our lives by theology. We may not know that. 
But it's true. The idea of studying God is not a very popular concept in our day. It rubs people the wrong way. It sounds cold. It sounds theoretical. It sounds clinical, mathematical. It conjures up images of biology class dissecting small animals, trying to identify all the different parts, and we say that's not how we're supposed to approach God. But studying God doesn't need to be like that. In fact, it shouldn't be like that. There's something wrong when it is like that. Psalm 111.2, one of my favorite verses, says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. No, the, the study of God works like this. It is a continual upward spiral. I study God. My delight in him increases, and as my delight in him increases, my desire to know more of him increases. And the more I know of him, the more I love him. And the more I love him, the more I want to know about him. That has nothing to do with frog dissection in ninth grade biology class. This is the kind of studying we do when we visit the Grand Canyon as people who live in the cornfields of Indiana, and the sun begins to set over this massive work of God and creation that we can't wrap our minds around, and our breath is taken away. It's that kind of studying. The kind of studying that leaves us speechless and in awe. The kind of studying that changes us. Josh Harris says it like this, we can study him in the way a man studies the wife he passionately loves. Does anyone find fault in him for noting her every like and dislike? Is it clinical for him to want to know her thoughts and the longings of her heart or to want to hear her speak? See, knowledge does not have to be dry and lifeless. Hopefully the knowledge that we have as husbands and wife is not a dry, lifeless knowledge. If, if you want to take your, your wife out to dinner and, and, and you're going somewhere where she actually really hates the food and you've been married for 15 years and you don't know it, because every time she tells you, you go, no, I don't, kind of do the put your finger up to her lip. Shh, shh, shh. I just want you. I don't want doctrine about you. That's un unloving and unspiritual. Like, you will have no more kids. Like, that's done for you. No, we would say, you're a terrible husband. You're a really bad husband. That you're not pursuing your wife's heart? Are you kidding me? You don't care what she likes and she doesn't like? And yet we come to God all the time and we go, no, 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 I just want Jesus. Has it ever occurred to you that God doesn't want you like that? That God not only cares that we worship him, he cares how we worship him, and he's told us? We don't take God as seriously as we take our marriage, and our marriage exists to point us to the great realities of God's covenant faithfulness to us. And we better take our marriages more seriously than we take anything on this earth. So knowledge doesn't have to be dry and lifeless. And really, what's the alternative to knowledge? Ignorance. Ignorance. Falsehood. These are the, are the alternatives to knowledge. We're either building our lives on the reality of what God is truly like, or we're basing our lives on our own imagination and misconceptions. So we're all theologians. The question is whether 
or not what we believe about God is true. Let's stand up together. Worship team, you can make your way up here if you would. I just want to ask us a couple questions. Again, I want to address this. In no way, in no way am I saying you have to pursue this path or you're thinking about like, I know Jason has done X, Y, and Z and I know he's going to go to school and do this. And he must be saying we all have to do that. And boy, is he smug. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying as Christians, we ought to be pursuing the knowledge of our God. And that when we do that, it has incredible benefits. I preach this, and if it comes off passionate, it's not because I think I'm smart and everyone else is dumb. It comes because in my life, there's nothing more practical than this. There's nothing more practical for my parenting. There's nothing more practical for my being a husband. There's nothing more practical in my job, in my ministry. There's nothing more practical when Kentucky somehow wins that game. The evil empire... The Death Star is supposed to be blown up, not kill everyone. No, theology is really practical because in that moment I say, and really, who cares? God, basketball is a good gift from your hand to us. Theology affects everything. It's the most practical thing. And if I'm passionate, it's because that is the experience of my life. It's the experience of so many saints throughout all of history. And it's because the opposite message is being shouted from the rooftops. And anyone who would say what was said this morning in this message is called religious and unspiritual and sort of unchristian. And I just want to say that is the opposite of the truth. So I do want to call us passionately to a pursuit of God. So just a a couple questions. One, are you growing? Are you maturing? Christian, are you more mature now than you were a year ago? Is your life more marked by maturity than it was a year ago? Are you a better theologian now than you were a year ago? And by that, I don't mean your your knowledge of, of Latin terms or Greek or Hebrew. I mean, do you know more of God now than you knew then? The things he likes, the things he wants, the things he desires. Can you discern the good from the bad? It's through, through constant use and growth we learn to discern the good from the bad. Can you? Are you discerning? Are you blown, blown around by every wind of doctrine that comes your way? Finally then, what's this all about? Are you continuing hard after God? Ultimately, theology is all about continuing hard after God himself. Not getting some knowledge that we can use in an argument. Not being a better debater. Not smugly knowing what's right and being able to point it out when somebody else is wrong. It is that when we pursue the knowledge of God, God gives us himself. So are you pursuing hard after God. We're going to pray together and then we're going to sing together. And I just want to leave us with that challenge. For some of you, you might have had a hard time with this whole sermon. It's very different than what we normally do. Maybe you're one who just thinks this sort of thing is super boring. Let's redeem all of that right now. Are you pursuing hard after God? You don't have to pursue hard after Jason. You don't have to think I'm not boring. You don't have to enjoy anything about me. Are you pursuing hard after the God that we proclaim here?
And, and we all must be. And when we do, the rewards are immeasurable. He gives us himself. It changes everything for us. So let's pray, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us. You didn't have to do that. You did not have to reveal yourself to people like us who are so unworthy, who, who are, whose lives are, are often unfaithful and self-focused. Yet, God, you have chosen to reveal yourself and, and you've chosen, God, to, to change us from the inside out to, to make us a people who are actually pleasing to you. So God, I pray for, for your namesake, for your glory, Lord, for your kingdom reign that you would transform us into people, God, who are mature, not blown about by every wind of doctrine, people who are, are solid in our faith. Lord, Lord, that we are not going to be conquered by this world, that we will conquer and overcome, not in our might, but in your might and in your strength, that God, for your kingdom's sake, you'd make us those people. Lord, birth in us a hunger for you that cannot be satisfied by trite sayings, by light teachings that just are aimed at helping us live a better life that we could do with or without you, by man-made religion that, that calls everything back to us as the center, that would seek to pull us away from, from the deep things of God. And we pray, God, that you'd birth in us a hunger to know you on a deeper level than we've known you before. So God, have your way in us as individuals and in this church. And we thank you, God, that, that you're the Lord of the church and you're the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.